So shame is about your character, not just about the results, not about the external circumstances, it's not about making a mistake, it's about your character. But um, that defeatist part of shame, which is that, well, this is who I essentially am, this is who I necessarily am, the Stoics don't endorse. They allow that freedom for self-transformation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And today we are going to be talking about shame, the emotion, how Stoics should think about it, because it's really one of those central human emotions, generally experienced as a negative emotion. But there's you know, this question, should Stoics feel shame at all? If so, you know, what's the best way to experience it? Or should we think of it purely as a negative emotion that is best reduced, if not completely eliminated? So that, that's what we're talking about today. And shame's one of those, I think everybody's well acquainted with it. It's one of those things that at its worst, I mean, taking a non-stoic perspective for a second, at its worst, it's one of the worst things you can feel. It's kind of life-destroying and in one sense, but then in the other, maybe there's maybe there's times you f- should feel ashamed. You know, maybe times when you've done something wrong, it's tightly linked to regret in that sense. In a way that can be, you know, I would think somebody who did something terrible and didn't feel ashamed was actually lacking in some sort of way. So there's um, both the good and the bad side of shame, and excited to dig into it in a stoic perspective a little bit more. Yeah, everyone has experienced shame, and it has those that that dual aspect of. Each of us can recall some silly moment where we said something silly, rather minor, but then felt completely ashamed of whatever occurred. Where and then, you know, there are, on reflection, it seems like that reaction was was not appropriate. And then still on, or perhaps in other cases, even even knowing others who are ashamed of doing things that we think they ought not ought not be ashamed of. And then on the other side, we also have just just as you said, there are certain mistakes we've made, we've seen others make, where a shame almost feels like an appropriate thing to feel. It does feel like an appropriate uh, emotion to feel. And the question is, how should you think about that now, given these stoic ideas? Yeah, I think that's right. When you were talking about it, I was thinking of the nuance now between shame and, you know, kind of contemporary slang of like cringe. You know, like if you're cringing at yourself or you're cringing at somebody else and almost feel like maybe cringe is, is a kind of a short-term passing experience. It's kind of an a embarrassment, really. And shame is, I guess, a, a bit more than that. I'm sure you're going to get into it in detail in a second, though, so I won't. I, I'll wait till then before I, I spoil what I think of it. All right, excellent. So in this conversation, we're going to be talking about how I'm going to frame it as sort of two different kinds of shame. I think the Stoics can say, that there is shame sort of as a passion. And in that sense, shame is understood as a bad emotion in the sense that you're not seeing things clearly. This is the case that there are the Stoics, part of the Stoic view is just that sometimes people do experience shame inappropriately and they experience it inappropriately because it's behind that emotion is an inaccurate judgment, uh, especially about the worth of things or their own value. So that's sort of shame as a passion. But there's also, I think, this other aspect of Stoicism where you see Epictetus, he's sort of like, you know, he's a motivational coach. And in a real sense, he does 
shame his students. He has a, a hard time for the fact that their actions don't line up with their ideals. And he does this repeatedly. And I think you can also see when you read Marcus Aurelius's meditations that he also uses a kind of shame, a kind of self-judgment as a tool for making progress towards virtue. So that's that's this other aspect of shame. You could or maybe you could call it stoic shame or a kind of self-judgment that we'll talk about more. But ultimately I want to put these two on the table. I think having both of these conceptions of shame is useful. And perhaps the first will be clear enough if if you've got some familiarity with stoicism, I think really reasonably clear why the first kind of shame is bad. But there's actually some some interesting aspects of both Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius around self-image that I think is, is underrated. So I think we'll get to some possibly re- very impactful stuff later, later on. Yeah, exciting. Let's do it. Cool. So shame as a passion. The Stoics saw the experience of shame as the fear of disgrace. You know, it's wanting to hide what you've done from yourself and others. And now the question is, often we're ashamed for the reasons that have to do with our own reputation. We have to do out of the fear of others' judgments. But this, of course, for the Stoics is an indifferent. It's not something that is ultimately valuable. Rather, it's how we use our reputation that matters. So you can think of someone who feels ashamed because they've done something that will be bad PR. It might hurt their bottom line or might hurt their reputation in a way that cuts off any future opportunities. This kind of shame is, you know, it's the fear of disgrace almost for its own sake or or for the sake of other indifference like wealth, status, pleasure. And that kind of shame, I think the Stoics are clear, just is an indifference. So you have Marcus Aurelius uh, likening fame and applause to merely the clapping of tongues. You know, he does his decomposition technique. He describes it in an objective way to sort of remove others' praise, others' criticism of its social power. So the first thing to say about shame is that, especially shame as a passion, it's when one is sort of overtaken by this judgment this that's grounded in a fear of disgrace, which ultimately is a matter of overvaluing others' opinions. And that that's, I think, how the Stoics would see the negative form of shame. Cool. So to throw that back at you, so shame is, is wanting to hide something that you've done. And if you want to hide something that you've done because you're attached to indifference or you're placing it inappropriate in, um, you know, your, your body. So you could have shame. You could have kind of physical shame if I'm embarrassed about how I look, but that's because you're kind of coveting physical beauty or you're identifying your, your value with physical beauty. Right? So if you, if you, if you, place value in the wrong kind of thing, then this experience of wanting to hide it or being embarrassed of it is a negative thing. And this is a kind of, that, that's how what I was taken to be. And that sounds like a very uh, common stoic play. 
right? So for the Stoics, their kind of taxonomy of emotions is a view that emotions, you're going to have a value judgment of something being good or bad, and then a view that it's either present or forthcoming. And then what you place in these categories determines whether or not it's a passion, it's a negative, destructive uh, emotion, or it's a eupathy. It's actually a kind of if I, um, if I desire virtue, you know, I'm going to feel a kind of a happiness when I, when I am virtuous. That's okay. If I desire uh, money and I feel a kind of ecstatic happiness when I win at the slot machine, that's actually a passion that's destructive and, and, and um, an inappropriate emotion. So it's a similar kind of play, which is to say, look, shame is one thing, but you've got to be very careful about the object of the shame. And if the object of the shame is something that you shouldn't actually want to hide, you shouldn't actually be embarrassed about, then it's, then it's inappropriate. You're making some sort of mistake. It's leading to this negative emotion. Is that, is that right, Kiel? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Epictetus gives an example of a minstrel or a lyre player who, he says, knows how to play the lyre, sings well, and has a fine stage costume, a nice detail, but who still trembles with fear when he enters the theater. He knows these things, you see, but he doesn't understand crowds and doesn't know about their cheers and jeers. So I think he has this anxiety about how are others going to judge him and Epictetus continues you know that's why if his performance meets with approval he leaves the stage all puffed up with pride whereas the prick of jeers deflates that bubble of conceit so on one hand the minstrel is an expert of his craft he does know how to play sing well uh, and yet he's not an expert doesn't have the knowledge about what is valuable when it comes to being a good being a good musician which of course people's reaction to your performance is some amount of information about how good or bad it may have been but it's not the sort of thing that should completely determine your view of how well you did or not the sort of thing that should cause one to overween with pride or as Waterfield translates it, you know, deflate that bubble of of conceit. Yeah, I, I've always taken that Epictetus line to be about understanding the relationship between value judgments and emotion. And so, like, say, understanding, look, the 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 reason you can play in your room with confidence, but you get really nervous on stage. Um, so the point here that you're making, Caleb, is, is that you know this is. We're taking that one step further, which is, you know, if you feel that kind of negative shame, embarrassment, that's because you're valuing, again, it's because you're valuing something outside of yourself, your value kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, instead of that, that thing that's, I guess, up to you, that, that kind of mastery of your craft or something along those lines. Right, right. And it may, I think it's probably also useful to distinguish here from these initial impressions, these initial feelings, and the yeah. overall judgment. So. If you are met with, you know, those jeers, boos, what have you, Epictetus isn't saying it's a mistake to have those impressions, you know, those, or even, you know, it's not, not a mistake to feel like that it appears to you that you've performed badly or something of that sort. What comes next is what matters, the musician's judgment do they at that point you know fully 
agree that they performed badly and perhaps if you which you get into shame feel like they they've done something that results in disgrace some amount of their self-worth maybe even be bound up with their performance that's when you respond to those perhaps initial challenging impressions and accept them take them on board that's when they become problematic yeah that's a great point about how look we're not telling you to not get nervous before you perform on stage like that's going to happen uh you know you're going to feel that way but it's then that you know do you allow that if you get booed do you are you the kind of person who you know is waking up a day later thinking about the time you got booed and uh, that destroy that kind of really shakes your confidence to the core. Just to use the language of the the episode, does that make you feel ashamed of mm-hmm. your performance? Um, just because somebody else thought negatively of it in the crowd, often even the minor- minority. Maybe not. Maybe you're really bad, and it's the majority. But even then, right? There's still things to be proud of: the bravery of getting on stage, the courage it took to perform. Another way to flip this too is: imagine if you were trying to get people to boo at you. So I don't know. Imagine you came on stage and you did some sort of evocative art piece that you you did understand the crowd and you did know the crowd was going to boo at you or you did a counter you were making some sort of political message or something and you expected to be booed and you received boos you would never feel shame in that kind of context because you'd think well you know there's nothing wrong with me for getting the boos the boos was what i was after on the jeers um it's that it's that thing of placing your value in the cheering that you that makes you shamed when you get booed. Yeah, absolutely. And another part that I think is striking about the different passages from Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus here is that I think the main mistake of interpretation is just giving too much value to others' opinions and others' opinions about things that do not fundamentally matter. There's this nice fragment from Epictetus where he writes of two people who are you know, talking to one another, bragging to one another. It's charming, he said, how some people preen themselves on qualities that aren't up to us. I'm better than you, says one, because I own many plots of land and you're starving. Another says, I'm of consular rank. Another, I'm a procurator. Another, I have gorgeous hair. The one horse doesn't say to another, I'm better than you because I've got a large field to graze in, plenty of barley, golden bridles, and embroidered caparisons. No, it says, I'm faster than you. So that's that idea that the horse cares about speed. I think the reading here is because that's something that it's supposed to be good at from its nature. So likewise, as a human being, you know what, what you ought to be caring about is how rational are you, how pro-social are you, not all these other features around wealth, status, power, and so on. Yeah, I I love that quote. I'm also loving these references. I have gorgeous hair. This singer, this liar player had a nice stage costume. It's really very extra. It was very uh <laughs> very very fancy uh discussers. Uh there's another quote by Epictetus where he talks about somebody saying, you know, I'm better than you or like somebody being proud of their horse and they're like, my horse is so amazing. I'm great. And it's like, no, your, your, your horse is great. Your horse is fast. It's like, why are you placing value on other things? So there's both that, that vice of placing value on these other things. And then Epictetus here in this quote, you just gave is providing an alternative. 
Well, mm-hmm. don't be ashamed and prideful of the amount of plots of lands you have or your hair. Be proud of um, your virtues and your vices, the things that are part of your essential nature as a human being, not the superfluous circumstances. Right, right. All right, that's shame as a passion. Now I think we can move on to, okay, so you have a sense of what the vicious version of shame is. Shame as a bad emotion, the sorts of thing you'd want to work on. But what's the positive version? So I think we've added one of our first episodes was on why you should care about what others think, in particular to be more precise. You know, if you if other people have accurate judgments about a given matter, then that's the sort of thing you should care about. And I think you can apply that also to your own reasoning. You know, if you're looking back and you think, oh, this action I did was in fact uh, mistake. And it does seem like that's something you should care about. Now is the, what's the next, you know, the question I suppose is what's the next move? Should you experience that as shame? How would the Stoics talk about that? Yeah. Interesting question. I mean, how can we, how can we harness, is there a way that this looks like that it's healthy? And if so, what is that? And how can we harness it to our advantage? Yeah. Yeah. What is the, if, 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 even if there's like fear and caution in is the are two emotions, fear is the unhealthy one, caution is the healthy one. What does kind of that healthy shame look like, I guess, is the question. And is it is it shame? Yeah, yeah. I suppose before we move on directly to that, it's interesting that Epictetus explicitly points out how humans are unique in virtue of our ability to experience shame. So from Discourses uh, 3.7, he has this uh, question, you know, and what are we by nature? We are free, honorable, and self-respecting. After all, does any other animal blush or feel shame? So here, shame is connected with self-respect, our image of ourselves, what we think our image of ourself requires of us. And I think that one of some additional moves here are that the beliefs we have about ourselves, our self-image, if you will, is part of our motivational structure. You know, I go to the I'm taking a simple example would be, you know, I someone who cares about cleanliness takes the time to you know, clean up their room, maybe Jordan Peterson style, because they see themselves as someone who is clean. They have that self-definition, that self-image that is going to demand actions of them because if they saw that they lived in a pigsty, then they'd either need to deceive themselves and not believe what their eyes are telling them or update their self-image. So I suppose if there's uh, you know, something central here, it's that our actions are in fact influenced by our self-image, which makes quite a lot of sense. Our actions in general are formed by our past judgments, and some of our past judgments make up our self-image. So reforming that self-image, maintaining it, is a part of this project of shaping our character. 
Yeah, I like that idea that that you know only the humans blush, um, and and incorporating that as part of our essential nature. I don't know if it's our, part of our essential nature, but it's something, as you said, it's something kind of um, unique to us. Absolutely. So I suppose the the next move is, I think, to see the healthy version of shame as maintaining our self image. And we, I think we do that in two mm. ways. So one is by noticing the disparity between our potential and reality. And we might feel shame when we realize our actions don't line up with our ideals or who we mean to be. And the second is spending time to actually cultivate that inner judge, as it were, that spending time to cultivate one's self-image in an intentional way and seeing that as part of character improvement, really. Well, so the, the disparity between potential reality, I think I understand what you mean. It's this kind of idea of being like, well, I'm just not that kind of person. You know, thinking that's, and the, 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 the existentialist rebuttal would be something like, you, you're whatever kind of person you are. You know, you're not, you're not, you don't have any sort of essential nature. You construct your nature by choosing to act. And we put these, we put these ourselves in these boxes to stop the existential dread of possibility. The fact that you could go and you could uh, leave your family the next day. You could um, commit some sort of heinous crime. Nothing's stopping you from doing any of these things. So we kind of may, put our, um, and this is the view, but kind of, I guess, in the positive, the positive sense, almost similar, which is like, we put this box around ourselves, this self-image. I'm a good person. I'm not the kind of person who cheats, who lies, who steals. And then that self-image is actually restricting our behavior, behavior in a positive way. Um, and so we want to lean into that, especially if these are like positive images. I guess the idea is that you could have, you could have um, that go the opposite way where you could say, well, I'm a, sh I'm a shameful person. I'm not the kind of person who tells the truth. I'm not the kind of person who's uh, faithful. I'm not the kind of person who um, doesn't steal. Like you could have those, I guess you could have that self-conception work both for positively and negatively. And I guess, it, I guess it's shame either way, but one kind of shame is constructive and one kind of sh shame is destructive. Yeah, I think so. And we should touch more on that when we're thinking about challenges, but this issue of if you're noticing that difference between your potential and reality, do you say, I ought to be better? Or do you respond in a more yeah, exactly. defeatist manner and just say, this is who I am. I am imperfect and I'm not going to get better, which is a mistake, but it's certainly, certainly a trap. So maybe we'll come back to that. But just to have the, I, I do want to note one way in which you do see this in the ancients, especially with Epictetus, is he's often accosting his students for being too interested in theory and not enough in practice. So you know, he makes makes fun of his students for being people who recite Chrysippus but don't show Chrysippus's teachings in their actions. Chrysippus was the third head of the Stoa, an ancient Stoic, and he says, you know, if you're 
you know, if, if when someone asked me to expound some passage of Chrysippus, I blush at my inability to show him that my actions reflect and are consistent with the words I'm reading. And I think he's especially poking his students saying, look, you guys are here in order to be excellent Stoics. But from what I see, what's revealed in your actions, you're excellent perhaps at theory, but I need to see it in reality as well. I need to see it in your actions. If not, that shame should provide some impetus to be better, to you know, become more like your positive potential. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about how when we, we talked today, we talked about somebody being shameless. And that's somebody, I guess, who has no kind of like dissonance between who they are and what they do. You know, they're like, I know who I am. This is how I act. And I'm not ashamed of it. And so this is almost saying we want to, there could be another, another kind of shamelessness that comes from really ignorance or lack of self-reflection, which is this idea of like, I claim to be a philosopher, but I don't actually do the things a philosopher do does. I claim to be, um, you know, a good person. Um, I claim to have all these kinds of things to so be courageous, but I don't do courageous things. And that, that lack of self-reflection would be the vice, you know, that kind of hypocritical, um, or at least like really not self-aware. And so yeah. you want to, you want to cultivate in those people, you want those people to cultivate an actual kind of, a kind of a, a shame. So go from being shameless in, in that dissonance to shameful and be a little bit embarrassed and recognize that the way that they're acting is not matching up with who they say they are, or who they think they are which mm -hmm. I think is actually a really good quality. Something I work on is like breaking down that, you, you put it as disparity between potential and reality, but breaking down even that disparity between self-conception and reality and trying to get those closer and trying to admit when I, when I fail to do that. Right, right. Yeah, I think this point of self-conception is key and it's related to that idea of cultivating this inner judge or another phrase from Epictetus is cultivating the God within. There's a, a philosopher, Kamtikar, Rachana Kamtikar, who has a nice paper on this. And I hadn't actually thought of connecting self-image with this specific phrase of Epictetus before. But she notes he's he's often this is one of his phrases and one way to interpret it is to think about how you are managing your self-image, how you're living up to it, and, and indeed connecting that idea with Epictetus's ideal of freedom. So let me, before I say anything else about that, one passage where he discusses this is Discourses 114. Nevertheless, he has also furnished every individual with a custodian in the form of an individual guardian spirit and has entrusted him to the protection of this unsleeping and undeceivable being. Is there any better or more caring guardian to which he could have entrusted each of us? And so, when you people close your doors and make it dark inside, remember never to think that you're by yourselves, because you aren't. God is there with you, and so is your guardian spirit. And what need do they have of light to see what you're doing? So you can have a metaphysical reading of this, certainly. Or you could think of your guardian spirit 
as that self image, right? That idea of who you are and the fact that you're something you're always going to be constructing through each decision, each choice, whether or not others are observing you. So if you think about shame as a passion, a crucial mistake of someone who experiences shame when they shouldn't is placing their well-being in the hands of other people's conception about themselves and other people's opinions about themselves. And what one way to interpret this move that Petitus is asking his students to do is think about your self-image as this sort of individual spirit and that self-image is what you should ask for approval from. That's the potential that you're aiming to live up to. That's that best version of yourself that should be setting the standards for your behavior, um, which of course is another way of saying this, you alone are responsible for approving your actions or not. And in that way, I think you become free, right? You're not contingent. Your well-being isn't contingent on other people's opinions. Instead, it's up to you, up to your own self-image and whether or not your decisions live up to that image of yourself. I, lo I love that. I think that's really, really beautiful. Um, and that's something that I think about very much with Stoicism. You think about the appeal to nature, but not this appeal to, I don't know, this guardian inside of you or this self-image, this reflection. This, um, it also, I was thinking about this idea of con uh, conscience. Maybe this is like a precursor to a conscience. And I, I was thinking about the etymology to conscience, which is science, con science. It's like to know together. And it's the same kind of idea of consciousness. It's the same etymology to that, which is like self-knowledge. I'm reaching a bit here with these etymologies, but I think they're all interrelated, right? It's like this reflexivity, this capacity mm -hmm. to think about yourself and what you've done actively. And that's consciousness, but that's also your conscience. That's also your moral guide as well as actual reflection. Um, and so this idea of leaning on that here that Epictetus is emphasizing, and, and what need do they have of light to see what you're doing? This idea, you know, kind of Santa Claus, right? Like they see what you're doing no matter what. Um, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a cool way to focus our moral energy um, just inward. This, again, this idea that, that you already have the tools to navigate the situation well, as long as you're really sensitive to this, this God inside you, basically. Mm-hmm. This is the version of the Stoic conscience, conscience, if you will. And I think one way in which it might be different than other versions of the conscience is that it's not merely a list of rules or things one ought to be upholding, but there's a focus not purely on acts, but who you are and whether you're living up to that ideal. Uh, which comes, of course, because it's a virtue ethic. It's focused on being an excellent person 
not say purely following rules or something of that sort. Yeah, it's um, not, and that's the other thing is that it's not just like a, often we frame conscience as the pang of guilt, and maybe that's something here too about it being shame, right? It's like the pang of shame, but there's also something aspirational to this too, right? Not just oh, I feel guilty after the fact. Like I, I feel like the conscience is also framed almost non-reflective, subconscious. Mm. Uh, it's the it's the feeling you get when you've done something wrong, not the thought, not the knowledge. And this is almost turning it into it's a bit more reflective um, and then a bit more aspirational too. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh. Epictetus gives the example of another philosopher, Euphrates, who hid the fact that he was a philosopher from others. Euphrates says, for a long time, I tried to hide the fact that I was practicing philosophy, and I found it useful to do so. In the first place, it enabled me to know that if I did something well, I was doing it not on account of any people who might be looking on, but on my own account. It was for my own sake that I ate properly and made sure that my expression and gait were calm and collected. Everything was for myself and God. And I, I, I like that example just because especially that ending highlights I, I'm doing these for their own sake for myself, not in the sense that it's purely egoistic action, but because it's a matter of, one could say, self-transformation or becoming a specific kind of person for its own sake, not out of what others would say about it. Yeah, I think we, we, we talk so much about contemplation of the sage. We put so much emphasis on this idea of like, yeah, it matters what people think of you. Just focus on good people, um, which I think is still right. But I like this idea of, well, it matters what you think of you. Um, you know, like that's a person. Uh, and, and so everything for myself, and even pulling this out of the abstract a bit, I mean, that's a test we still use today, right? Like if you post it on social media, you know, those things where people go around and they donate money, but they film themselves doing it. It's like, it's always a bit confusing about, well, what's the real reason? Um, but if you're, if you're doing it, you know, in, in a way that nobody knows, you're clearly doing it for yourself. And that's when it's not, it's not that you can't be doing it for the right reason and doing it publicly. It's just, you're definitely doing it for the right reason if you're not doing it publicly. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. More, you're more likely to be doing it for the right reason. That seems right. So that's anything else you want to say in terms of the stoic view of shame? Well, let me just try to, let me, let me try to, uh, I feel like we covered a lot there. So let me try to summarize. You can correct me when, when I get this wrong. So shame is this um, grace, a kind of uh, uh, wanting to hide what you've done from yourself, a kind of a, an emotional negative feeling for having done something wrong or done something disgraceful. Like anything else, like any other stoic emotion, it matters what you focus it on. So if you feel shamed for something that's outside of you, you're probably getting this wrong. Um, you know, you're not, you shouldn't be ashamed um, at the way that you look. You shouldn't be ashamed at your social status or what somebody said of you. Now you're placing value in the wrong kinds of things. That being said, we can, we, the stoics teach that we should care about our character. And so we can use shame as a motivating force if we direct it towards the right object, which is to say, if we feel a bit of a pang of guilt or a blush when 
we fail to live up to um, our potential or when we fail to act in the kind of way that we conceive of ourselves as. And the way to, the, the actual exercise for that is to cultivate your inner judge, which is the, that kind of reflexive sense of yourself um, that evaluates or asks proactively, did I live up to my potential? Did I act in the way I was claiming to? I said I was a philosopher. I said I was a good friend. I said I was a good partner. Did I do that? Did I live up to that potential and that self-image? And then if I didn't, well, then I'm going to feel a little bit ashamed of that. And that's going to motivate me uh, to improve. But it's got to be, it's a kind of a self-reflective action. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be for the right reasons. We didn't touch on it here, but it's also got to be for in the right amount. Anything that becomes kind of defeatist or -hmm. kind of like, well, I lied here, so I guess I'm just a no good liar forever is uh, that's that's taking things too far. Yeah, yeah. I think that I, I agree with that. I think my view would be that there are two different kinds of emotions, perhaps or these are two different kinds of phenomena. One is a shame as a passion. And then there's also the emotion one has when you notice you're not living up to that inner judge or you're not living up to your potential, your aspirations in a healthy way. And I would consider those two different emotional states, even though they're responsible responses to very similar feelings, very similar sensations or impressions, if not the same impressions. Yeah, I'm sure the Stoics, we don't, I don't have the Greek in front of me right now, but I'm sure the Stoics would use different words for them. They do that all the time, right? Like that example I gave of fear and caution. Caution is when you avoid something for the right reasons in the right way, and it's a healthy emotion, and fear is the unhealthy passion. And so we don't say passionate fear and healthy fear. Yeah. There's always like a kind of a, a distinction the Stoics make. I don't know what you would. I don't know what division you would make here, which is kind of like shame, and then maybe like self-respect is the healthy yeah, one. Yeah, But you'd have some sort of different framing there. Yeah, I think self-respect is a is a as a fine way to put it. I I think yeah. uh, especially given Epictetus's focus on on self-respect. Awesome. I think we can wrap up just with a few challenges that people might have when they're thinking about. Okay, we've got shame as a passion, the stoic version of shame, thinking about self-respect. How do we do that? How do we experience that well? How do we avoid potential uh, obstacles? So going through some challenges, I think, would be useful. Um, And one is that we can experience shame inappropriately when we're responding to the wrong standards as it were. And I think there's two ways this can happen. One is when we have inaccurate beliefs about what is good. Another happens when you have inaccurate beliefs about what is possible. So in a way, shame as passion just is that first one, most often, you have inaccurate beliefs about the value of others' opinions, the value of disgrace, what have you. And then the second one is, I think, is more of a challenge when it comes to you know cultivating that inner judge, which is that you need always need that combination of being ambitious 
but also being realistic. I think if you try to go from zero to one in a given habit, you know, never run before, I think I'm going to run an ultra marathon in the next three weeks. And that's going to require running every day, starting at 10 miles a day or something like that. That's obviously going to not be feasible for most people. And I think it's a, it's a balancing act to ensure that your self-image is something that you can attain, that you can begin to approach. So possibility is, is one it needs to combine those, that striving for being an excellent person with uh, being realistic. Yeah, and possibility, I, I think that's a really smart distinction, Caleb, and possibility hits on a type of shame that I don't think we've talked about, which is interestingly not the type of shame Epictetus brings up, but is very common, which I think is this kind of shame for the past or shames for shames, shame about things that have been done. And I think that violates the kind of type of possibility, right? Which is that uh, you couldn't do differently. So, you know, you can't, you shouldn't be ashamed currently, for ago, um, because you can't do differently. I'm talking about somebody who's apologized, who's like, even if you, they deserved, they deserve to feel shame in the moment, has, you know, come to terms with that, apologized, taken the steps they should. You feel, maybe you feel shame in the moment for not apologizing, taking the steps to reconcile or doing what you need to do, but you shouldn't feel shame in the past because there's not really that possibility of changing that or fixing that. The other type of thing is the kind of self-forgiveness that comes with understanding possibility. So, you know, if you, you know, I don't know, if your parents are divorced and you blame yourself because of what you did when you were 10, it's like, well, it's not really possible for a child to understand that or navigate that situation well. Um, it's not really possible for a, a child to have that kind of foresight um, or it's not really possible for people people feel guilt and shame about all kinds of situations that they didn't control or didn't really cause. And so that, again, appeals to that possibility. You don't necessarily want to say, oh, well, that situation didn't matter. It wasn't an important situation. But you can appeal to that idea of, well, was there a possibility for you to have done differently? Was there a standard that you should have held yourself to? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, I think the answer is no. Um, and we're just doing some pop psychology here. I think people transfer the, the, the negative emotion of the situation onto themselves yeah. because I think they want to retain some control or some sort of, but really it's no, that's going back to you didn't, ha there wasn't any possibility. And so you, you couldn't have changed it. So you, you shouldn't feel guilty. Yeah. That, I think that that is a kind of shame we haven't talked about as much where we define shame is wanting to hide what you have done from yourself and others. But it is true that some people will, will feel shame merely for being in, in a particular circumstance. It's not even a kind of action or for something that was done to them yeah. instead yeah. of something they explicitly did. And that is somewhere where I think you do want to keep in. I think to some extent we haven't, I think, fully addressed that experience here there's more to say about it but at least one thing to say about it is it is misplaced because it wasn't it likely wasn't possible for you to avoid that you couldn't one couldn't have been expected to 
avoid whatever experience that was very, very often. Mm -hmm. uh, one other, maybe one other line that might be useful here is I, so I do think it in the stoic sense, it does make sense to feel shame for things that happened say a decade ago or something of this sort, if that is serving as a guide and not a critic. So if that, if remembering that act is something that actually plays a role in motivating you to do better than you know, having that, you know, in the back of your mind as a matter of self-respect can be useful, it fails if that memory is purely serving as a critic as something about, yeah, you know, you're not, you're this kind of person because you did that. That's the sort of thing that isn't, isn't updating your character in, in any positive way. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's where the English language, we're starting to struggle a bit with the English language here. You know, shame as this kind of internal critic, guilt, uh, that for something 10 years ago, especially something that you've acted, that you've made up for, if you, if you should have made up for it. I'm not sure if I feel, I, I think that's usually, if not always unhealthy, but as you said, you can get pushed forward. Well, I'm not going to go back there. I'm not going to be like that again. I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard now that can have a, a, a motivating force for good. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to touch on any other challenges? Or um, I mean, what I have here is that, um, so one, one other idea is this one thing that we haven't talked about is this distinction. Martha Nussbaum makes this distinction, uh, between shame and guilt and, uh, Nussbaum, uh, who's a amazing political philosopher, contemporary political philosopher, but also ancient Greek philosopher as well. Um, says the distinction here is that guilt is you feel guilty about things that you've done and you feel shame for what you are. So shame is about an, uh, placing that essential onus on the self and guilt is um, acts. And the difference there is that guilt is a better emotion or at least the easier emotion because you can atone for things you've done, but you can't change who you are, at least in some people's conception. And I would say that's a very significant stoic difference is that even when we're talking about shame the stoics might say well shame is about who you are but you can change who you are mm -hmm. uh, so shame is about your character not just about the results not about the external circumstances it's not about making a mistake it's about your character but um that stricting uh defeatist part of shame which is that well this is who i essentially am this is who i necessarily am the Stoics don't endorse. They allow that freedom for self-transformation. Um, and I think that's what that's what puts it... I think if you had shame in that other category, well, it would be always bad. I'm always going to ignore it. I'm always going to avoid it. Uh, and that's what I think puts this positive shame on the table. And that's what makes it motivating or motivating self-respect, whatever we want to call it, is because it's, it's, it is deeply entrenched in this, this growth mindset. Yeah, feel bad about being person A because we believe you can be person B. We know you can be person B. Um, whereas, you know, feel bad about being person A and you're going to be person A for the rest of your life doesn't feel quite as inspiring. Right, right. Yeah, I think it, it is about who you are, about the fact that you're not currently living up to your individual guardian spirit or your self-conception. Your potential. Your potential. And your 
emotion should always be serving the purpose of motivating virtue here and seeing reality as it is. And for the Stoics, you can change who you are. You can make those you know, both realistic and ambitious incremental improvements. You can always progress and you can progress towards being uh, someone with excellent character. Um, so just thinking about yourself just as this person essentially is going to be a mistake. Gail, I'm feeling surprisingly pumped up and motivated after this discussion of shame. That is the <laughs> first time in my life we had All a good right. chat about shame, and I'm like, I'm feeling good, actually. All right, that's great. All right, thanks for listening, y'all. Cool, thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.